0: How's everybody today? Merry Christmas. Yeah, Matthew chapter 2, the story of the wise guys, I mean the wise men. <laughs> so uh, as you're turning there, um, there's, a, there's a Christmas movie that came out about probably 20 years ago or so, maybe you saw it. It's called Jingle All the Way. Anybody ever seen it? Starring your favorite actor, Arnold Schwarzenegger it's, uh, yeah, the good thing about this movie is everybody survives to the end of the movie. <laughs> so I find, it, I find it an interesting movie because it, uh, it's very reflective of you know, our passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today. So the movie starts off with you have an overworked Arnold Schwarzenegger. I forget the, I forget the character he plays in the movie. Uh, who's a workaholic and he waits to the last minute, of course, to do his Christmas shopping. And so this particular year... As in most years, there is a toy of utmost value. Every child's got to get one, or you're not a cool kid. Um, And it is Turbo Man. Superhero. And so he sets off, Arnold does, to find Turbo Man at the last minute. And so he goes to first store, can't find one, goes to another store, can't find one. So store after store after store, he's trying to find this toy of supreme value. And and the movie is about all the hardships that he goes through trying to find this toy. Finally, he realizes like there's no toys in any stores. I can't find it. And so he hears on the radio, this radio station has one and they're going to give one away. And so he goes to the radio station to try to get this toy and he kind of holds everybody hostage until he finds out They don't actually have the toy here. They're going to give it to us sometime later. He escapes narrowly and has no idea what to do. And so he's, maybe I'll steal the one from the neighbor's kid. Because I know the neighbor's kid's got one under the tree. And finally, in the process of trying to steal one, he gets a conscience and puts it back. And so with no hope, no idea what to do, um, of course, the movie takes a great turn of events where, in the end, he goes to a parade. He actually... By fluke, becomes Turbo Man. He gets mistaken and becomes Turbo Man, and is awarded a toy, and he's able to give one to his son. And so his wife thinks that he's not a bum. His child thinks he's a hero, and everyone rejoices happily because the greatest toy on the planet is now under the Christmas tree. And so that's kind of reflective of our story today, because well, instead of a toy of a great value, we have a son born, who is king of the Jews, and he is Christ, our Messiah, the one, the person who is of greatest value. And we have the wise men who are seeking after him, going uh, to great ends, to great lengths to find him, to worship him, going through great hardships. And in the end, when they find him, there is great ecstasy when they have the chance to worship him. So let's take a second, let's read through Matthew chapter 2, and then we'll pray and then jump into today's message. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, read. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word that it teaches us that it God became flesh, that you came and dwelt among us, and you began your life as a little baby, and even as a baby, you were worthy of being sought after and being worshipped. Father, I pray that you will stir in our hearts to to love you, to fear you, and to go hard after you, even when uh, the world opposes us, even when there's hostility that rises up against us, that we'll go hard after you, because you are the one of supreme value. The one who is the only one who is worthy of our affections and our allegiance. I pray, Father, that even this morning as we read and as we listen, that you will stir in our hearts to know you. And I pray, Father, for those who are distant from you, that you will draw them to yourself because, because you are better than the lives that you've given us. You are better than the things that we might chase after in this world. I pray, Father, we we'll get a small taste of that today. We love you and we pray this in your name. So in this passage, we see there's, there's really three main groups of people that are here. Um, you've got the wise men, the magi. You've got well Herod, an individual. And then you have the, the religious leaders, the, uh, the scribes and the, uh, the, uh, the chief priests. And so what we see here is that there is a particular way that each of these groups respond to realization that Christ has been born. So with the magi, their response is to seek after him in order to worship him. You see, with Herod, his response is not that. Rather than worship, he seeks to, to bring his demise. So he responds with hostility. But then the religious leaders, the ones who, who know it all, you, you'd think that they'd be the first ones to pursue after, after the born Messiah. Rather than seeking after him, you see that they respond in indifference. And so these are the three responses we see in the text today. And actually... As we examine our lives, as we examine the world around us, they're the same three responses that we see today. Some choose to worship, some choose to uh, be passive about it, and some choose to oppose. And so let's look through these responses and see what we can learn today, and let's examine our own hearts as we go. So the first point I want to make is, is, the proper way to respond to Christ and his birth is to worship him. And so we see the story begins with the Magi, who are from a land far, far away. Um, we don't know where exactly. You know, we, we can only speculate where they're from. A lot of scholars think they came from Babylon. And one of the reasons they think that is because, well, the, Jude, uh, so the, the Jews were exiled in Babylon, and they brought their faith with them. And, and so there were a lot of people who would have heard about uh, the coming Messiah and a, and a reigning king. And then after they went back, there would have been a remnant of Jews who remained behind. And so there's some scholars who think that, that possibly that's how the Magi knew of the, uh, uh, the Messiah, the existence of Messiah coming. Um, so there's some other things we, we might could speculate is, is that they would have been people who were uh, of wealth in their society, people of influence. But this is just speculation looking at history. The one thing that we do know for sure is that they're astrologers. What they do is when the rest of us go to bed, they stay up late at night, and they're looking at the stars, looking for some kind of meaning in the stars in the sky. Well, one particular night, they got that when a star appeared, a unique star. Now, what that star was, we don't know. Now, this is where my nerd side actually comes to life. So my undergrad is in science education, and and so thinking of the stars and the skies and the heavens above is something that's really fascinating to me. And so I like to read, like, what was the star? What was it? And so a lot of people who uh, have science backgrounds and are also theologians try to explain what this phenomenon was using the laws of physics that God put into motion when he created the world. And so some say, hey, it might have been a comet that was shooting across the sky, or it could have been some form of alignment of the planets, or maybe it was some kind of supernova, which is more or less just an exploding star, and the exploding star viewed by us is just a really brilliant it's a star that becomes really brilliant for a period of time and then, then fades away. And so I'm like, what is it, what is it, what is it? Well, there's another group of people who are um, against the scientific thinking and are, like, and are opposed to thinking scientifically about this, and they think, hey, well, the star, it's, it's a miracle. It's a one-time event, something unique that God brought about at this one time to broadcast the birth of his son. It was his birth announcement. And so the thing is, it's like, even though I am curious about it, we have to be very careful in focusing on the star. Because if we focus on the star, we run the chance of missing out on the sun, the S-O-N. And so a lot of people get caught up in the minutiae of this thing right here. And so even though it might be interesting to have a conversation about what the nature of the star was, we have to be careful because in carrying on about things that are minutiae, we run the chance of, of losing faith in the midst. So if questioning what God did do. The fact is, is that God did broadcast across the universe that a son had been born in Bethlehem. And he did it through a star. And what the nature of that star was, we have no idea. But what we do know is the, the Magi, when they saw it, they responded to it. They knew that a Messiah had been born. They knew that this Messiah was the one that was promised. It was the fulfillment of the promise to David. So God gave David a promise that one day A son from his lineage would be the one day forever king who would rule over God's kingdom. There's also another fulfillment. There's fulfillment to Abraham. Abraham was promised long ago that there would be a son from his family who would bring peace to all the earth. But more so than that, we see that it's a fulfillment of God's promise to Adam in the very beginning. That God would bring someone from Adam's lineage who would crush the head of the serpent, the devil, and would do away with death and sin forever. And the Magi, when they saw that star, they interpreted that star to mean this individual. And if this is the individual that has been born, he is God in the flesh, he is a deity, and he is worthy of our allegiance. And so they sought after him. And so they packed their bags, and they set out on a journey, not knowing what the journey would be like, traveling over mountains, down valleys, through rivers, across deserts, open plains. Who knows what the journey would have been like, fighting off animals and bandits, and who knows? It would have been a very difficult journey to have traveled, day after day, week after week, month after month. The journey probably took several months, until they wound up in Jerusalem, where the king of the Jews should have been born, right? But when they got there, what they find out? He ain't here. Actually, in fact, as they went around looking for the, for the Messiah, nobody knew what they were talking about. Hey, where's the Messiah at? Uh, who? What? What? They didn't know what they were talking about. And so, we see that through a course of interaction with Herod, they find out that the Messiah was actually not born in Jerusalem, but born in Bethlehem. And so after the dis- disappointment of not finding the Messiah where they expected, they pack up their bags one more time and head down to Bethlehem. And when they arrive in Bethlehem, They find the Messiah in his home with his mother. And what they do when they get there is they fall down on their faces, prostrate, and worship. The great thing about this image is is that uh, sometimes with our bodies, we can act out what is happening in our hearts. We don't always lie down and prostrate in our worship. There's not room here today. But the thing is, is when we lie down, when they were lying down, what they were saying is that I am unworthy. There's nothing in me that is good. I am like this dirt that's here on the ground. But you, you are worthy. You are of great excellence. You are supreme. You are the one who's worthy of my affections and my allegiance, and we offer that to you. And that's what they were saying when they bowed down before Jesus. But they didn't stop there. They continued to worship. The next act of worship had to do with giving of gifts sacrificially. So the Bible's clear. They give three different gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. These would have been things of extreme value in, this, in their culture. Not, we don't really use those things today. But in their culture, they would have been the greatest things that their land had to offer. And so they brought them to Jesus and laid it before his, fit, before his feet. It was a gift worthy of a king. Now, a lot of theologians like to think and ponder about well, what's the significance of these, of these gifts. And so there is some symbolism that we can see there. So in giving gold, gold is the medal of kings. And it can symbolize the fact that Jesus was to be the king or is the king of all kings. The frankincense was uh, an incense that was derived from, from plants. And it was used uh, as a um, burning in the temple. To give off an aroma symbolized prayer. So it's something that priests would have used. And so in giving the frankincense, we see that it could be symbolic of the fact that Jesus is the great high priest. He is the one who intercedes for us. He is the one who laid down his life and goes before the Father day by day saying, Father, don't give them what they deserve. Don't punish them. Punish me rather than them. And last you see in the myrrh. Myrrh was something that was used, um, also a sweet smelling thing but it was, also, it was used to, uh, to put on bodies of dead individuals before they went into the grave, like an embalming process. And so when we see this, it's, it's also foreshadowing the fact that Christ was going to die and resurrect again, and in doing so, he was going to be our supreme savior. And so we see these, these elements here in the gifts that they gave, but the worship didn't stop there with the giving of gifts. So that night, when they're sleeping, They had a dream. The dream was to not go back to Herod. He's mischievous, don't go back to him. And so they obeyed. And they followed, uh, they went went back home by another route. And so what we see here is the act of worship was not just falling down at the feet of Jesus. This whole journey that they went through was one giant act of worship. See, worship is something that we don't just do when we gather together in a place like this. It is the disposition of our heart as we go about each and every day through our daily tasks. So if you want to think of worship, its very essence, the very core of worship is attributing worth to something. Realizing that something is valuable and pouring everything that we are into it. And that's exactly what the wise men did. They saw the star. They knew that the Messiah was born. He's worthy to go after. They went through great uh, troubles to travel because he was worthy. They had disappointment when they got to Jerusalem when they couldn't find the Messiah. He was still worthy to be pursued after. They get to Jesus and they worship at his feet because he is worthy. And then they give him gifts because Jesus is better than gifts. They gave up their greatest possessions to have Jesus. And then they obeyed in the end in order to ultimately preserve their their lives and the life of the Messiah. They obeyed because he is worthy. And like us, the same is true for us. Worship is something that we do day by day by day, moment by moment. It's the disposition of our heart. It's realizing that something is valuable and we pour ourselves into it. And so the question we need to reflect on and ponder is, is how can we be in the process of worshiping our Messiah during this Christmas season and, and beyond? So just pondering maybe someone's normal routine, an act of worship would be when the alarm gets off, forgetting the snooze button, dragging yourself out of bed, and hitting the scriptures so that you can have some time with the Lord before the day begins. Or perhaps it's when you're driving to work and you are listening to the radio. It might be a simple act of worship being turning the radio off to have a few moments alone with the Lord in prayer before you start the busyness of the day. Or an act of worship might be while you're at work. Working diligently at the jobs your boss might give you. And doing it without complaining, because in that act of working without complaining, we're showing that Christ is better than my way, having things my way and going about them the way I think is right. Then when we come home in the evenings, you know, it might be easy to just check out because we've had a hard day. We might be tired and want to veg and watch TV or, or sit at Facebook, but an act of worship might be to engage our children, engage our spouses in meaningful conversation because being, the, being leaders of our homes, being invested in our family is better than pursuing the desires of our hearts. So these are just some simple things that we can do in, as acts of worship just through the minute-by-minute minute, mundane things of our lives. So these things and 10,000 things more are ways that we can worship the Lord by aligning our heart with him because he is better because he is worthy Now the thing is is you might hear this and feel condemned because you don't get up in the morning early to have a quiet time or you might need that radio on in the morning because you're going to fall asleep at the wheel or maybe you are smarter than your boss who who knows what the scenario is <laughs> The thing is is God's not looking for perfection from us in our performance. If it was based on our, if our acceptance before God was based on our performance, we would all fall very short. We would all, we are all condemned before God because of our performance, because it is so pathetic. But the thing is, is God sent his son, Jesus, to live the perfect life. His performance was spot on, so ours doesn't have to be. And so now, as we seek after him in faith, we lean on him take away our sins and to give us the strength to give us the grace we need day by day to seek after him and that's what God is seeking from us a disposition of our hearts where we want to make much of him rather than focusing on the individual things of our lives so these are some simple acts of worship that we can focus on so the first thing we want to want to want to reemphasize is in light of the birth of Christ the correct way to respond is in worship But what we see is, worship is not the only way to respond. Second, let's look at Herod. Herod was a bit of an idolater, because uh, when he heard of the risen Christ, he was troubled in his heart. Well, why, you might think? Well, because he was the king. But he was not the king by birth. And so, a king born in the line of David, would have a rightful claim to the throne. He was appointed by Rome. So he was the king, had been there for about 40 years by the time Jesus was born, and he didn't want to give up his authority. So he had become, in his mind, the greatest thing on the planet. So when he woke up in the morning, he'd look at at the mirror and say, you handsome doggy, what are you going to do today? (laughs) We're going to rule the world. He thought that he was the center of the universe. He thought that he was something special, and he uh, worked in such a way to preserve that. So when he heard about the Christ, he wanted to make sure that it was stopped as soon as possible. And so his response to Jesus was hostility. So what we see is as he brings in the, the Magi by cunning. He is mischievous. He brings him in and says, so, you're looking for the Messiah? Well, he's not here. I hear that he's born in Bethlehem. That's what the prophets say anyway. But I want you guys to search him out, find him, let me know. That way I can go and worship him. Now, I think it's this point in Matthew that uh, the uh, the author, Matthew, kind of leaves out something. He leaves out the mysterious blah, ha, 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 at the end of it. You know, if you read between the lines, you can see it's there because Herod is plotting in essence, to kill Jesus. By killing Jesus, the rightful king, then he thinks that he can preserve his throne and his lineage on into the future. And so, what we see here is, is that uh, the Magi, they go on, not realizing that they are a pawn in Herod's game. They find Jesus, and then it's by divine intervention, a dream, that they, re- they don't come back. And Herod realizes, those stinking Magi, they duped me. So he takes matters in his own hands, he sends troops to Bethlehem, and he knows that Jesus that, well, is roughly around two years old, somewhere between birth and two years old, and to make sure he kills off Jesus, he kills off all the innocent children, all the babies, all the boys under age two, he kills them all off. The one who is the leader, the one who should be the protector, the one who should be the one who's looking after the welfare, the, well, the good of his people, in order to preserve his throne, in order to... Preserve his idolatry of heart. He kills off those who he's supposed to serve. And so we see Herod's response is hostility. And we can see some of that same hostility in our world today. Um, I had a chance to go earlier this year on a mission trip to Japan um, with several other individuals from our church. The Japanese people are one of the largest unreached people groups in the world. 99% 99% of the Japanese people are far from the Lord. They do not seek after Him. And one of the reasons is, is possibly because uh, in the 17th century, there was a, a great persecution of, of the believers who were there. Missionaries had come and done evangelism and people were coming to know the Lord and and people were hostile towards what Christ was doing. When Jesus comes, change comes. They didn't like that. They were against the Christ. And so Uh, The leaders of the time, would one of the ways they would single out Christians is they would have a little tile that had a picture of Mary on it and Jesus. And they would go to the village and they would set it on the ground. And then what they would say is, is, they would get all the people, and they would say, go and step on it. And if you stepped on it, then you got to go back to your home, to your farm, to your life. But if you stepped on it, then what happened was is, they would line you up and in some form or fashion torture you. They, would get you. they would try to get you to recant your faith and leave it behind. And if you would not, you would be killed. And so there were a ton of Christians who were killed in the 17th century by this by this martyrdom. And as a result, Christianity kind of went underground for a couple centuries. And, and it has never recovered even to this day. And so there's a movie that was published about a year ago that kind of, um, oh, I, knew this, I have a brain fart right now. I forgot the name of it. That um, was made that kind of reflects on some of these things. Um, and so what we see is, is this persecution is very common. We see it in the communist states of, uh, of Russia, where they've not recovered over from banning Christ. We see it in China. It's still legal to follow Christ. And those who do follow Christ are, are persecuted for that. And so there's a lot of people in the world who do not love the Lord and they respond to him in hostility. But the last group of people we see, hostility is not the only way to respond to the Lord. We also see that indifference is a way to respond. So when Herod heard that the Magi were coming, or had come, they were looking for the Messiah, so he gathers together the religious leaders there in Jerusalem and says, so what's the deal about this Messiah? Where is the Messiah to be born? And instantly they respond, oh, well, well he's going to be born in Bethlehem because the prophet says so. And then they quote scripture from, from Micah chapter 5. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so just like a kid in school class Who's dying to raise his hand to say, "Look at me! I know the answer." Look at me! I know the answer. They told the answer, but that was where their heart was. That's all the joy that they had. They didn't joy in the fact that that there was a Messiah being born five miles down the road. They focused more on the question being asked and answering it. In my opinion, they stopped a little short reading the scripture. If you keep reading a little bit further. Just the next line in Micah, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it goes on and it says, talk, not just talking about the, where the Messiah is to be born, but who the Messiah is. It says, his going forths are from long ago, from days of eternity. So this passage right here is reflecting on the one that is born is God himself. He is the one from long ago who's whose origins are from eternity. They missed that part. The ones who should know the Lord and be excited about the fact that he has come, that he has been born, are very indifferent about the fact that he has been born. Just five miles down the road, is the distance between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, and they're indifferent about it. This, this part of the story is what really, I guess, makes my heart struggle a little bit because... You know, I've been raised in a Christian tradition my entire life. I, I started attending church nine months before I was born. <laughs> and I've been hearing stories of the Lord, and there is a danger of familiarity that you're so familiar with something that you don't grasp or think about the significance of it. I think uh, a little bit of social media kind of plagues us in that because. Um, you can Facebook stalk somebody and never really know them. You can get on Facebook, and I can see uh, what somebody's had for breakfast. I can see where they went on their vacation. I can see every update about their children. I can know the ins and outs of your life. But if I was to sit down with that individual, I would have no clue who they are as a person. I think social media kind of does that for us. And I think being, being raised in a church tradition, we have the same danger of... of, of that familiarity where we know the scriptures, but we don't allow it to trickle from our heads down into our hearts and change us from the inside out and to grow affections within us where we pursue and long after the Lord. That's the danger we run into. Our culture, on the other hand, has a slightly different um, indifference. Our our culture's indifference is, is that of Kind of a tolerance. You might talk to someone about the Lord and say, hey, this this truth, Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins. Place your faith in him because he is worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your allegiance. And they would say by they they respond by saying, Well, that's good for you, but not for me. And so we see that a lot in our culture. People become indifferent. And it's even more prevalent around this time at Christmas. So I'm very thankful for how my parents did Christmas because it helps us to combat this indifference. So the world around us paints a picture that Christmas is about. Let's give give gifts. Let's get the things we want. Spend time with families. Have some time off from work. And the list goes on and on and on. In America, it's very commercialized what Christmas is. And so my parents tried to paint a different picture of what Christmas is. So Christmas morning would roll around. And me and my two brothers, would be chomping at the bits. We, we, we were ready to go and open presents. And of course, mom and dad, all they want to do is sleep in. And so we're banging on the door. Come on, get up. Come on, get up. Finally, they sleepily roll out of bed. And dad's like, well, who's ready for breakfast? <laughs> we don't want breakfast. We want presents. So finally, we get to the Christmas tree. We're ready to hand out presents to everybody. And dad's like, wait just a minute. Children, we must read the Christmas story. And so we would get out our Bibles, and we would start with the angel Gabriel coming to Mary, prophesying that she's going to have a child. And we'd jump from there to the birth, where they travel to Bethlehem, where the shepherds find out they come and worship, and the the angels. And then we'd read about the the Magi coming. Now, if we were on the naughty list that particular year, Dad would drag it on out. He'd go to the Old Testament. Let's read the Old Testament passages about how Jesus has fulfilled all these things. No, Just kidding about that one. (laughs) No, but the thing is, is my parents were very good about pausing and showing us that the way the world sees Christmas is not what Christmas is. And they would take just five minutes before we would open our gifts to say, this is what Christmas is. Christmas is not about you It's not about you opening presents and getting the things you want. It's not about you indulging in the season. It's about a Savior. who's Christ the Lord who was born to save you from your sins. God came in the flesh. That's that's something weighty for us to ponder and think about. Emmanuel. My parents did a good job of that. And now me, my two brothers, (laughs) we do the exact same thing to our kids now. (laughs) Sorry, kids. (laughs) So what we see is one way to respond is indifference. Indifference is also the most dangerous way to respond. Because in indifference, when when you have the disposition of, well, maybe Christ is valuable, maybe it's not, maybe it's for you, not for me. When you have that kind of mentality, the very next stop is to turn towards hostility. Because those who are indifferent don't stay there. They end up opposing the thing. They end up going against Christ. So I don't know where you are. If your heart's already filled with hostility towards Christ, you want to live life on your own, do your own thing, I pray God will soften your hearts towards Him. Maybe you're indifferent. I want to caution you. Don't be indifferent about Jesus. When He says, I am God, and He calls you to Himself, don't ignore that. He's calling you to know him because the next stop, if you ignore that, is to be hostile towards him. A couple passages I want to read. For the religious leaders, Jesus reflects on this in John chapter 5. They were content just knowing the scriptures, not letting them trickle into their hearts. John 5, 39 and 40, it says, talking to the Pharisees. You search the Scriptures because you think that in the Scriptures you have eternal life. But it is these Scriptures that testify about me. And you're unwilling to come to me so that you might have life. John 9, verse 39. And Jesus said, It's for judgment that I came into the world so that those who do not see So that they may see. So that those who do see may become blind. It's interesting. The indifference of the Pharisees turned into hostility. Because when Jesus grew up, and was calling men to Himself to follow after Him. (laughs) These, These same Pharisees and religious leaders... At the birth of Christ were those who grew up to be those who opposed him. Or they raised the sons who did oppose Jesus in his life. And Jesus said to them, when he became a man, when he grew up, you think that you find life in the scriptures, but I am life. I am the author of life. Seek after me. I am the one who is the conclusion. And so that's where we are today. How are we going to respond to the fact that Christ has been born? Christ was born to set men free from their sin. How do we choose to respond? Do we choose to worship him like the Magi did? Seek after him with all of our heart against all odds? Or do we respond in indifference? Uh, it's not for me. Or do we respond in hostility? Okay, let's pray together. Father, we do love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word teaches us that you are better Thank you, Father, that you sent your son so that we might, so we might have life to the fullest. I pray, Father, this Christmas season that we will ponder how we might, how we might worship you day by day, moment by moment, to bring joy to your face. I pray, Father, that you'll satisfy us in Christ. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in your name.